This week's episode is brought to you by Fairy Godmother Travel. Contact them today at fairygodmothertravel.com. Tell them that we sent you. Uh, and by we, we mean us. Welcome to Season 3! Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And it's a gorgeous day here as I'm sweating and (laughs) recording this episode. That just shows you our dedication to our cadets out there. That we're willing to go the extra mile and sweat. Oh, dude, it's it's like 71 in the house here. This is awesome. 71? It's like 88 miles per hour in the house here. <laughs> it is so warm. We don't have air conditioning, though. Well, that's because you live in Southern California, and normally you don't need air conditioning. Uh, usually you don't, but when you're living in a place that was built in the 40s, and air conditioning consisted of a gigantic block of ice and a fan back then, mm-hmm. um, you know, Well, I, I mean, is, is the place haunted? I it, I don't know. You tell me. You were here. Yeah, but we you know it was so fresh and new. I just didn't know what was going on. Oh. You know, so exciting. So, and plus, so, I was thinking about Disneyland and the Communitor. And so you know. nobody woke you up in the middle of the night by staring at you and eating ice cream, is what you're saying? No, I didn't notice you doing that at all. Okay, I just wanted to be sure <laughs> that you didn't notice me doing that. <laughs> just wanted to be sure. Yeah, we we should probably talk about the uh, World's Fair again. Okay, let's do that. It's the fiftieth. Of the 64 World's Fair and the 49th anniversary of the 1965 <laughs> So, in the last episode, episode 125, we looked at the design aspect of the Ford Magic Skyway attraction for the 1964 65 New York World's Fair. So, now we're going to be looking into the actual production and installation of it at the fair. Now, up until this point, everything that we talked about was only in scale model form. And these models were actually shipped to Detroit for another presentation with the Ford executives to see if they liked it. So on December 13th, 1961, Walt, John Hench, and Bill Cottrell, they actually gave a uh, presentation of the entire pavilion to the Ford executives. And after it was over, Henry Ford II stood up and said, thank you, we'll let you know. And then every executive followed him out of the room and said the same exact thing. So... Needless to say, Walt wasn't very happy about that, because he kind of sort of had been working on this for months and kind of sort of wanted to hear a response right away. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Exactly. The, the PR guy for Ford told Walt to stay put and ran after Henry Ford. And after a few minutes of explaining to Henry that they needed a lot of time to actually make the things they presented and needed an answer now, Henry <laughs> agreed to it. Walt was extremely happy and didn't waste any time getting back to Burbank to start production. The process had to be quick though. Oftentimes, a lot of the maquettes were being made at the same time as the full-size figures, which was pretty unorthodox, considering the maquettes acted as a guide for the full-size ones. Now, they were considering a full-size mock-up of the attraction, but due to the sheer size of the entire thing, it was decided they were just going to go, hey, let's just make the ride and be done with it. So they did. Um, Walt actually wanted to get the dinosaurs sculpted right away, and he asked Blaine Gibson when he could get started. And Blaine said immediately, 
as soon as I had a building large enough to make them. So <laughs> a prefabricated building with 18-foot doors uh, to get the dinosaurs in and out was actually erected on-site at Disneyland, so Blaine could start right away. So notable sculptors were hired to actually help Blaine with the sculpting, such as Howard Ball, who sculpted the dinosaurs at the uh, La Brea Tar Pets here in California, and a former Yale art professor, George Snowden. And it's worth noting that at this time, production on all the shows they were doing for the fair were ramping up. So you know, Walt's attention was divided between all the projects, so he spent less and less time devoted to the Ford Pavilion. But he had full faith in his Imagineers that they could do the job with no problem. Ford executives, however, were not so pleased. During one meeting with Walt, one executive said, well, now that you're here, Walt, we can really get going. Walt was furious because his guys were working day and night to get the thing perfect, but the executives just didn't see any progress unless he was there. Now, we mentioned earlier uh, in the last episode that the plans were very secretive for the pavilion. And General Motors and Ford were in direct competition, so they were always trying to outdo each other, especially when it came to the fair. So reports were trickling out that GM was doing a new Futurama, much like their 1939-1940 show, that would have a capacity of 6,000 people an hour. Those numbers are bananas, even by today's <laughs> standards. So Ford started to trickle information here and there to get folks excited for their pavilion as well. And it was found out that the pavilion would include a trip through time, including dinosaurs, and that really excited the audience who was getting ready to, uh, to get to experience it. And uh, they also held a press conference, sawing off the, the auto parts harmonic orchestra, as we talked about in episode 125, designed by Roly Crump and Bob Gurr, and, and that was a huge hit with the press. So they knew they had to deliver an amazing show to keep up with all this hype they were creating for themselves. So even though the construction of the pavilion itself began in early 1962, by March 1963, it was still a mess. With the fair only a year away, things still needed to be shipped and then installed you know, inside the pavilion. And let's not forget about actually testing it all together to make sure the ride worked, you know, also. And, and that's where more problems arose. Ford provided 160 convertibles to Disney as ride vehicles. These vehicles were specially made. No engines, transmissions, or fuel tanks were in them. They had no rear view mirrors, and a special six-track tape player was installed in each one. And in order to get them into the show building, an elevator had to be constructed to lift them from the bottom floor to the show floor. Now, one of the very last cars to be put inside the elevator was a red Mercury, and unfortunately, it got stuck. Now, the elevator itself malfunctioned, and it slowly began to descend. The problem was that the car was halfway out of the elevator at the time, and they couldn't stop the elevator from descending. So over the course of a few hours, as the elevator slowly made its way down, the car was kind of crushed into mm. two pieces. and. Ford was none too pleased and everybody was pretty nervous, but thankfully, the actual test of the ride system itself with the early version of the Wedway People Mover worked wonderfully without any problems whatsoever. The only issue was spacing. Yes, they needed their personal space. Because sometimes cars don't understand <laughs> that. Exactly, I mean, you've seen those movies. Right? You're driving on the highway sometimes and cars don't understand your own personal <laughs> space. That's how accidents happen, folks. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so these cars were not hooked together. They were essentially freewheeling on the track. And since the track was controlled individually in each area, sometimes fast, sometimes slow, the weight of the various cars kind of screwed things up. One night, a car somehow got turned sideways when another got too close, which caused a massive traffic jam in one of the time tunnels. 
you never want a traffic jam at a time time. Never, ever. Never, ever, ever. So each car then has to be moved by hand to get the spacing right. But spacing problems continued along with new rules from Ford saying what cars could not be near others. Mm -hmm. Broken taillights and bumpers happened all the time, so a mini repair shop had to be set up on site. Even up until opening day, there were issues. So they hired a couple of guys to stand at certain intervals of the show with baseball bats. I'm not liking where this is going. No, 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 it's okay. Oh, okay, good, yeah. They would then use the bats to measure the space between cars. And if one got too close, they would fix it as it was going so it wouldn't bang up the car in front. This went on for a few weeks until it was right. I, I could just see them just... Just dudes standing in the shadows with baseball bats in God, New York. That in, in, alone. In a, in a time tunnel. Even. In a time tunnel. That's kind of odd. It's all the making of a gangster movie. But fortunately, it wasn't. It was a Disney attraction. <laughs> so the installation of the figures themselves in the show was a nightmare, too. Because of the time crunch, everyone was really working on top of everyone else, causing human traffic jams, not just car traffic jams. And theft was apparently a big issue as well, as some of the guards were letting their friends steal some of the great stuff that was going into the pavilion. So, some orders actually had to be triplicated in order to just keep one of the things there to be used in the show. But, eventually the figures, 68 of them in all, started to arrive and be installed. But, uh, in early 1964, some figures kinda got lost on their way to New York. So, of course, Ford, seeing this as an opportune opportunity, I didn't know why I just used opportune opportunity at the same time. That sounds really weird. But it's, it's using a great word, it, right? Yeah, using it twice. That's what I'm going to go with. <laughs> but they saw this as a big publicity stunt. So they actually let, let out a headline saying, Four cavemen and a woolly mammoth lost in a snowstorm. That, that's what they put out because those were the figures that were lost. Fortunately, it, the person who was driving the truck uh, that had these four cavemen and the woolly mammoth they just actually got lost, and it only took them a few extra days to get to New York with the missing figures, so they didn't have to be replicated and brought back. <laughs> so there was a another fun story about how Marty Sklar was working on timing for the tape tracks. Uh, this would make sure the tapes would play the, uh, the correct thing at the right time to match the surroundings. Marty painted white strips on the floor of the track where each track, audio track, should start playing. He spent all night doing it just to make sure it was right. He came in the next day to set it up, only to find that the entire floor was painted black during his short time away. He was furious and had to redo all that work again in half the time, of course, to make sure it got done. Despite all of these issues with the installation and the theft and the painting over, over audio tracks, <laughs> the pavilion was actually completed one month ahead of schedule, which is amazing. So Ford hired 400 random people at the rate of $8 per person to test the pavilion out and make sure it was fun for everybody. Thankfully, they all had very favorable responses and Ford was extremely pleased. So Ford scheduled a press day for April 12th, 1964, just 10 days before the fair opened on April 22nd. So Walt remarked to the crowd that the exhibit was a parable through man's journey through time, from his primordial beginnings to an unknown tomorrow lighted by the fires of science. So even Robert Moses was impressed, calling it a magnificent pageant of man in terms of his environment, adaptability, and inventive genius. The public agreed, as it was one of the most popular pavilions at the fair. And though it didn't get to live on in a Disney park like their other three pavilions, it was still a marvel and is remembered fondly by those who went on it. And not 
as well researched as the other three. <laughs> but this one was a lot of fun to research, and I actually learned a lot more about the pavilion that I did not know beforehand, and it makes me really wish that we did have a time machine so I could go check it out, because it just looks great. Well, maybe we'll get one for Christmas. I... What, what if some of our vans don't celebrate Christmas? Like me, I do Hanukkah also. Oh, that's true. Winter solstice? Well, my birthday's closer, technically, so what if I just get one for my birthday? It's kind of weird to give us both a birthday present on your birthday. Well, mine's in August, so we well, can, like... if you give it to me on my this. birthday, I can travel oh, to your go birthday. Back in time and say, like, happy birthday. See, George, you just weren't thinking this time travel thing through. No, no, we should probably move on now. Clearly, I'm going to have use of the time tunnel. You're not going to. <laughs> He's a nerd, he's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. Okay, so this week's book is actually a graphic novel, which is still a book, called Space Mountain by Brian Q. Miller, illustrated by Kelly Jones. And this is a compendium of the comic series that was just released into a graphic novel. And, you know, it is a work of fiction, and it is about Space Mountain which might be kind of weird, but for anybody that's been listening to us for any time period, which is hopefully everybody in the world, knows that not always is the fiction good. Oh, I thought and, you were going to say we're kind of weird. Well, yeah, I was gonna, you know, they'd figure that out eventually. Oh, fair enough. Know. Fair enough. But, but you know, um, when, when this one sort of rolled across our collective desks, we didn't know what to think about it because uh, it was a, a comic book set in the future and it made use of Space Mountain in a special way that I don't kind of want to give it away but you know it's I looked at the cover because I firmly believe you can judge a book by its cover and it's three people in space in front of Space Mountain and one of them's firing lasers so sounds cool but uh <laughs> I, I would have been on board for that alone I mean honestly this is a graphic novel that they announced a while ago like I've heard about this before they even uh, came out with the Museum of the Weird concept for comics or the Figment comics. And when the Museum comic came out, when, I'm sorry, Seekers of the Weird came out first, I just assumed this concept fell to the wayside. So I was kind of pleasantly surprised when it showed up and we both got it. And uh, I, I was pleasantly surprised by it all, all overall. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a good story, you know, that I thought it was kind of fun. And as we talked about, uh, well, we haven't talked about it yet, but it, it, it does focus on time travel. And basically, scientists can observe human history, not go back. Well, they can go back, but they set up special devices. And, and we sort of see uh, two students that are part of the science academy that get to go 24 hours into the future. Their first time into the future, mind yes. you. Yes, that, their that. first time into the future. Yes. Yeah, the students. Um, so, of course, you know this is... Disney-related, so something has to go wrong. I was going to say, just for the record, poor planning to send two students on the very first mm -hmm. mission into the future. I, as a parent, I would be like, listen, maybe they should test that a couple times first before I send my kid into the future. That's just exactly. me. Exactly. Send some squirrels. Minor, squirrels, exactly. Minor send quibble, just saying. Go on. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's not really a new premise. We've all seen some great time travel before, but what I really liked about it and what was a lot of fun for me was seeing what kind of time travel and scientific equipment they used because it sort of relates to various attractions and ride vehicles that, that you'd find. That we all know Disneyland, and love. That we all know and love from Tomorrowland. A lot of great icons from the park uh, that you'll see. Um, and, and they're kind of put into a, another use, which is kind of neat. Yeah. I yeah. like that. 
But overall, to me, I think this story kind of reminded me of like older Disney adventure films. And mm -hmm. to me, it was incredibly charming. Um, and I mean, at some parts it got a little dark. There were some sections of the story that may be a little dark, but I mean, overall, I really enjoyed what they did with the concept because basically when they said Space Mountain graphic novel, they could have done anything. The sky was the <laughs> limit. I mean, wh what what's the story? They can do whatever they wanted. Um, but I was I was pleasantly surprised with the story they came up with and how they executed mm -hmm. it and they made it smart enough for people like us to read, meaning uh, not very smart people because that is us. Um, I was like, where are you going with this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm insulting our intelligence, George. But they also made it very approachable for kids. Um, yes, yeah. with, with the, you know, they had some pretty good science facts in there too. So they did, uh, Brian Miller did his research, um, mm -hmm. but it was good. I, I really liked it. Yeah. You know, it, it, it kind of reminded me of comics that I had read in the seventies that, you know, were geared towards a lot of the earlier serials like Buck Rogers. And it wasn't a very realistic approach in the artwork, very stylized and very sci-fi, but it was still really well done. And I enjoyed it a yeah. lot. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I was really surprised to see, you know, them take an iconic attraction like this and turn it into a story. Um, and it totally went the opposite direction I thought it was going to. I actually had no idea what they were going to do with it. Well, they, I mean, they all. proved clearly with pirates that they can take an attraction and they can make a good story out of it. They disproved mm -hmm. it later on with the Haunted Mansion film. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I feel like this could easily translate into a good film as well because it kind of had a film feel to it. And yeah. again, as a fan of traveling through time and relative dimension and space, I was really pleased <laughs> with this very first outing of the Disney graphic novel. And it kind of made me excited to see what they sure. can do with other attractions. I think so too, like other worlds. I mean, you know, it's adventureland frontierland main street yeah that'll be interesting exactly that'll be interesting to see but you know i would i would really think you know it's really geared towards nine to twelve year olds but any disney nerd's really going to enjoy it and they're going to have fun reading it and discussing it with other people as well we'll, we'll start a graphic novel book club exactly let's do that we, we should do a graphic novel of the, of the month club <laughs> then some of our fans like gary might be able to read it exactly uh, that's all we'll say uh, okay so this week's book was graphic novel was a book space mountain Written by Brian Q. Miller and illustrated by Kelly Jones. What we liked, what we didn't like, in the booze! 60 Second Review! Now, as some of you may remember, we recently came back from the Camino Tour, which was a week-long adventure <laughs> in Southern California. And because of that, our schedules were a little thrown off for doing... Uh, extracurricular activities that didn't involve going to all the theme parks in Southern California. <laughs> so George and I were a little bit delayed in seeing Captain America, the Winter Soldier. Mm -hmm. but we, just a little bit. Just a little bit. Um, but we did finally <laughs> see it, and we both loved it. Yep. I think. You know, it, it, it's I hard living. It. Yeah, it's hard living with an 11-year-old that dresses up like Iron Man and Captain America, and he's dying to go see this film. And I'm like, dude, we gotta wait. You know, not this weekend. I'm in California, Disneyland, and you're not. Oh, shoot. Did I say that out loud? Okay, sorry. There, I mean, there was a part where that weekend we were like, hey, let's go see the movies. And we could not go see Captain America because yeah. my son would have son. gone crazy. But anyway, so this is a continuation of the Marvel Universe, the second Captain America film. Like, what is this number? Like eight in the series now or I, something Out like of that? all the Marvel, it's up there. I don't eight remember which nine. one. But. And uh, you had seen it before I had seen it. But also, I saw it after watching 
uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., the television series. So I knew a lot of stuff that was going to happen in the movie before I realized what I was watching, but that's okay. Um, I, I thought The Winter Soldier, of course, being the second, they always have to go a little bit darker with the second film, and this had a little bit of dark darkness to it. Um, but the characters were still fantastic. Loved seeing how they evolved, how they changed since the first film and since the Avengers film, because a lot happened. Yes, exactly, exactly. It and, you know, I, I enjoyed the pace. It was a little bit more relaxed than the Avengers film. It was more political thriller, I thought, yes. than oh, good. Yeah. action movie, comic book movie. And to me, I was okay with that. In fact, mm -hmm. I want to say that this probably ranks in my top two or three Marvel movies right now. Nice. Because I just, I really enjoyed the... The political thriller aspect of it, the espionage, the uh, the mm -hmm. what's going on, who who is the I guess the mole as they would say on Twenty Four, mm -hmm. um, but overall, I I thought it was a great plot, a great way to expand the characters, a great way to see them grow over time, especially mm -hmm. with the events from Captain America the first one and the events from the Avengers, yeah. um, and of course Scarlett Johansson was in it. So oh, I'm glad you brought that up. Bonus. Because, I mean that's just there you go. That's all we should have said. Here's our review. Scarlett, Scarlett Johansson. Johansson. Well, good night, like everyone. <laughs> they really need to make a Black Widow standalone film. Yeah. And I know yeah. they are currently filming Avengers 2, and she's also currently pregnant. So I don't know how that's going to work. However, yeah. when she is up to it, they should definitely do a, a Black Widow. Because, not only because I really like Scarlett Johansson, but I really like the character of Black Widow. I think yeah. it's very intriguing. She added... It was a great buddy film for Captain America to team up with the Black Widow. Um, that's true. That's true. I, I thought they, they worked their dynamic worked really well together because they both from literally two different places uh, in time and in their lives. But For what it is, yeah. Yeah, for what it is. But for, you know, it's great. And, you know, I, what I liked part about it, it, it was more... It, Marvel is able to take... I mean, they've got Kevin Feige doing the production... And he's, you know, keeping all the storylines intact. And he's able to bring some of these smaller, more obscure characters into the limelight that people have no clue who they are and bring them into the movies and make them iconic. Yes. And excluding with the storylines, I mean, you know, the sneak preview for Avengers 2 is the Age of Ultron. And we're leaving the theater going, which one was Ultron? We see, okay, he wasn't this when he wasn't Galacticus. I'm going, okay, we got to check Wikipedia. Well, you're not a nerd like I am, so of course, Ultron to me is not a minor <laughs> character. That's a huge deal. Well, no, I meant in general. <clears throat> Trying to cover my tracks oh, now. Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. You backpedal that one, George. Backpedal. Let me take so, some of your nerd cred away from you. Exactly. Try. That's okay. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, we both loved it. We both enjoyed it. If it's still playing where you are by the time you listen to this, definitely go see it. And if not, I think it um, comes out in August on Blu-ray. Nope, September 9th. September 9th. Thank you. Thank September you. Thank 9th. you for that. Same date is the Marvel Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Ah, I see. Which I will be watching soon. Yes. I did not complete it because I knew there would be some spoilers for Thor 2 and Captain America Winter Soldier. So I did not finish out yeah. the season. But I will be now. Yeah, they all die. That's why you need to what? know. They all die. Does it take place inside a snow globe, too? <laughs> what is... Did you just ruin it for me? No, 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 not at all. No, no. Does the no. Winter Soldier Everybody's kill fine. Dumbledore? <laughs> I'm just... I'm sorry. I'm just throwing out random spoilers now. I don't okay. even know. Anyway, I enjoyed the film. Yep. You enjoyed the film. I did, too. You so. should go see and, the film. And my 11-year-old enjoyed it. And there we go. Good enough. All you need. Sometimes you might see it. Sometimes you don't. Hey, look 
For those of you stopping at Oswald Super Service while entering or leaving Disney California Adventure, take a minute to look at the car off to the right hand side of the building. Now, it looks like it was taken directly from the 1920s. Now, even though the film took place in 1930s Chicago and not in 1920s in Hollywood as Buena Vista Street is, the car has a nice little tribute to the film Dick Tracy in it. If you take a look at the passenger seat, you'll see a newspaper with the headline, Tracy Triumphs, Bad Night for Big Boy. The headline, and the short blurb of the article after that you can read, is actually a reference to the end of the film Dick Tracy, where Tracy and Big Boy have their final showdown on the bridge. And Breathless Mahoney, need I say more? <laughs> but she's no Scarlett Johansson. She is no Scarlett Johansson, but, but Breathless still. Mahoney. Exactly, exactly. I, I do love when the Imagineers can pull something obscure. I always forget that that is technically a Disney film. It was released mm -hmm. by Touchstone. They are well, more... That was owned, yeah. Yeah, they're Disney an adult, quote-unquote, oriented <laughs> label, even though it wasn't really a label. But such no. a good film. Mm -hmm. Such mm -hmm. a good film. Just missing something. The, yeah. I'm missing that wristwatch with that I can talk Ooh. to. Then again, I have an iPhone, so... I mean, I talk to my watch all the time. Well, you're strange. Well, that's true. Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for watching and listening. I did it again. Watching and absorbing another episode. I'm just I don't gonna know keep why you always do that. I don't know. But it's funny. It's just a thing now. Know. I get it. Who knows? Regardless, <laughs> please, please leave us a comment and give us a rating on iTunes. We love to hear from you guys. Yes, we do. Email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns. And, of course, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. Yep, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Imaginerding, and he's at Jeff Heimbuck. And of course, you can call us on the CommuniCore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. Sorry, there's a car in the background. That's okay. <laughs> Maybe they're delivering a message from one of you guys how much they you, you enjoy Ooh. the show. Or a pizza. Or a pizza. It's not a pizza, guys. Unless somebody oh, ordered not. me a pizza, which would be great. That would be awesome. Sunday okay. nights around <laughs> 6 p.m. Disneyland time is when we usually record. So if anybody wants to order me a pizza, I'm okay Just send it that. that way. But then they got to know your house. They do, and I'm not going to say that on the podcast. But it is called the E-Ticket. The E-Ticket Lounge. The E-Ticket Lounge. See what I did there? Exactly. It's very clever. I like it. I like it. So, okay. Don't forget, you can still get a copy of the musical. They haven't run out yet. I'm not sure if or they ever. Will, but they can still keep printing more, releasing more digital copies. But Communicore the Weekly... Communicore Weekly, the musical. Really, George? Exactly. We're on episode after 126, years and you can't and, uh, even say the name of our show correctly. No, no, that, that's because I'm, I'm hungry and I want pizza. Fair enough. Now that we're talking about it. So, you know, you can you can get your copy of the 45-minute musical extravaganza at Amazon, CD Baby, iTunes, and even listen to it for free on Spotify. Heck yes. Exactly. So, for Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on CommuniCore Weekly, the greatest online show.